And if I could invite everyone's attention this morning to the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah, chapter 7. The book of Isaiah, chapter 7, and verse 14. The title of our message this morning on Christmas morning is Why Believe in Christ's Virgin Birth. Very, very sadly, um, we're entering an era of church history where people are, if not denying the virgin birth of Christ outright, they are certainly marginalizing it. This is a quote here from Brian McLaren. Um, he is a leader in what's called the Emergent Church. It's a long quote, so I won't give you the whole thing, but concerning the virgin birth story, notice he calls it a story, kind of like Jack and the Beanstalk, just a fable. He says its literal factuality is not the point. Well, what's, what's the point of it then? According to him, the virgin birth is about male patriarchy and how God overthrew male patriarchy 2,000 years ago. I give him an A for creativity, but an F for biblical accuracy. Andy Stanley, the son of legendary Charles Stanley, said this in a sermon in 2016. He says, if someone can predict their own death and resurrection, I'm not all that concerned about how they got into the world concerning Jesus. He says, Christianity does not hinge on the truth or even the stories. Notice these guys that keep calling the virgin birth stories. Or even the stories about the birth of Jesus. It really hinges on the resurrection of Jesus. So according to Andy Stanley, the main thing to focus on is the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, how he got into the world is sort of a sub, a sub-theme. It's not that important. Well, I've got news for him and others that believe this. He's preparing people to receive the Antichrist because the Antichrist will rise from the dead or look like it. You see that in Revelation 13, verse 14. I bring up these things not to malign different ministries, but I want us to understand the time period that we're living in Or the virgin birth of Jesus Christ is something that people are, if they're not calling it into question, they're acting like it's something unimportant. What I want to communicate to you this morning on Christmas morning is that if you take away the virgin birth of Jesus, that miracle, that science-defying miracle that happened 2,000 years ago, then Christianity and your whole Bible begins to collapse like a house of cards. You destroy the virgin birth, Christianity doesn't exist anymore. This is why I believe the devil himself has waged a war against this doctrine. 
for the last century or more, it's come from liberals denying the virgin birth of Jesus. And very sadly, more recently, it's come out of those that you think would know better, evangelical Christians. So as we consider this topic this morning, uh, here are the seven points that we're going to seek to communicate. These are the seven dominoes that fall over if the virgin birth of Christ never happened. Now, I've got to warn you before we get into this that this is probably a seven-part series crammed into an hour or so. So you may not, you may be full of eggnog and other things and not be thinking. So you really got to put your thinking caps on this morning. We can do that. Amen. Because we're supposed to love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, and mind. So here's one of those... You may not uh, have been planning on getting some in-depth theology this morning, but we're going to bring it to you anyway. The first reason that there absolutely, absolutely uh, had to be in terms of an essential, the virgin birth of Jesus, is if you do not have the virgin birth of Jesus, you destroy messianic prophecy. Because your Old Testament Hebrew Bible predicts the virgin birth of Christ. In fact, in Genesis 3, verse 15, I believe is the first reference to Christ's virgin birth. As we've been traveling through the book of Genesis, this is a passage that you know, no doubt, very well by now. It's the first messianic passage given in the entire Bible, and God, at the dawn of human history, says... I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Right at the dawn of human history, immediately when man fell, God put humanity and the devil himself on notice that there is coming one from the seed of the woman who will take Satan or the serpent's head and crush it. And one of the most interesting things about that particular prophecy is between your seed and her seed, Eve's seed. Now, wait a minute, pastor, hold the phone. I thought it was the man that supplied the seed. The man with the sperm supplies the seed. And this seems a little strange here because it doesn't say his seed, it says her seed. And that is your first hint in the Bible that when this Messiah comes, God is going to do something supernatural, and he himself is going to insert the seed in the woman that will be known as her seed, and it will not come from a man. So this is your first, it's not, the doctrine isn't as clear as we would like, but that's your first reference to the virgin birth of Jesus. And then you move to the passage that I had you open up to, the book of Isaiah, chapter 7, verse 14. And here is prophecy number 2. It says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin, that's the Hebrew word Alma, will be with child, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. That is your second reference to the fact 
that when the Messiah is born, this of course was written 700 years before Jesus ever showed up in humanity. When he comes, he will be born of a virgin. And this is probably on a lot of your Christmas cards, etc. And immediately when you talk like that, you're going to get three objections. And let me just talk you through those objections if I could. Because the unbelieving Jews cannot believe that we believe that Isaiah 7 verse 14 is actually a prediction of the virgin birth of Jesus. The first argument that they give in response is this cannot be a prophecy of the virgin birth of Christ because if Isaiah wanted to communicate the virgin birth of Christ 700 years in advance, he would have not used the word Alma. He would have used the word Betula. In fact, I was listening to a very extremely well-known radio personality. He's conservative. He's Jewish. I agree with so many things that he has to say in terms of worldview. And he is not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is a believer only in Hebrew Bible. And that actually is the argument that he used on the radio. He didn't want to be too outspoken about it because he'd end up alienating his Christian audience. But he basically made the point that this cannot be a scripture about the virgin birth of Christ. Because if it was, it wouldn't say Alma. It would say Betula, and to him the argument is just that simple. The problem with that is Betula is used in the book of Joel, chapter 1, verse 8, of a widow. A widow is not a virgin, necessarily. Can't be a virgin. And so this argument that, well, he just would have used Betula instead of Alma, that argument doesn't The second argument that you'll hear when you get into this subject is they will say that the Hebrew word Alma does not mean virgin. It's just speaking of a young maiden, a young woman of marriageable age. And the truth of the matter in that first bullet point that I have there, I have all of the scriptures that use that word Alma. And when you study it out, and we don't have time to talk through them all, I wish we did, but when you study it out, what you'll discover is every single one of them could easily apply to a virgin. For example, Alma is used in Genesis 24, verse 43 of Rebekah, Isaac's wife, that we would assume would be a virgin. It's used of singers in Solomon's court in other passages, which we could easily assume would be virgins. And one of the things that's that's very interesting is we have something about 200 years before the time of Christ called the Septuagint, sometimes called the LXX. Um, Essentially what it is is it's a Greek translation of the Old Testament written 200 years in advance. How did the Septuagint translators translate Isaiah 7, verse 14? This is very interesting. They use the Greek word parthenos, which means virgin 100% of the time. So apparently the Septuagint translators believed that Isaiah 7, verse 14 is speaking of the virgin birth of Christ. And even 
more importantly than that is Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. Matthew, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, Behold, the virgin shall be with child. And notice that Matthew, when he translates Isaiah 7, verse 13, verse 14, again uses the Greek word parthenos, which 100% of the time always means a virgin. So this argument that, well, Alma really doesn't mean virgin, that argument doesn't fly either because there is no precise word in Hebrew meaning virgin. There is one in Greek, but not one in Hebrew. And yet that word Alma can easily apply to virginity, as I've tried to demonstrate The third argument that you'll run into related to Isaiah chapter 7 verses 13 and 14 is people will say, well, how could Isaiah be talking about the virgin birth of Jesus, which is going to happen 700 years into the future? The prophecy has to concern a problem in Isaiah's day. It can't be some kind of predictive prophecy. It's got to relate to an immediate issue of the time involving the jeopardy that King Ahaz of that time period was being placed under. And one of the things people start to argue is they start to argue that, well, you know, Isaiah 7, that's not about the virgin birth of Jesus. That actually is a prediction about a child that was born in the next chapter. Now, it is true that there is of a child in the next chapter, Isaiah 8. But notice this chart here where we show you the differences between what is predicted in Isaiah 7 and what actually happened in Isaiah 8. First of all, the two children have two different names. One is named Emmanuel, Isaiah 7, and one is named Mahar Shalal Hashbaz. Say that three times fast. Isaiah 8. Different names entirely. One child is a blessing, the second child is a sign of judgment. One is born to a virgin, the child in Isaiah 8 is born to Isaiah's wife. One is probably talking about a child and tracing that child's birth up to about age 12 when you look at the details. But the Isaiah 8 child is only a child of about one to two years old in terms of her prediction One child in the context is about the Assyrian judgment upon Judah. The other child in Isaiah 8 is a Assyrian judgment upon Syria and Israel. And so it is very interesting that there is a child born in the next chapter, but that child in Isaiah 8 has absolutely nothing to do with the child predicted in Isaiah chapter 7. So how do we answer this argument that, well, this cannot be a prediction about the Messiah 700 years into the future because it had to concern Ahaz's day? Here's a few responses to that. First of all, the book of Isaiah contains a lot of information in it that has nothing to do with the time period of the immediate audience. One of the most famous passages is in Isaiah chapter 53 which is a passage about the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ, 
And everybody understands Isaiah 53 as a prophecy of the Messiah. And so if you start to play this game that, well, Isaiah 7 has to relate to the immediate audience, you've got to throw out Isaiah 53 as well. The second problem with this idea that it has to relate to Ahaz's day is this word sign. Notice again, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. What is a sign? A sign is a, is a miracle. And how could a, the birth of a natural child in the next chapter be a miracle? I mean, that's just an ordinary occurrence. And so details don't fit. And one of the things to understand, and I realize this is a lot of heavy stuff on Christmas morning, but one of the things to understand is in Isaiah 7, 1, and 2, you have not one crisis happening there, but two. Back up in the chapter, if you could, and look at Isaiah 7, 1, and 2. Last time I checked, Isaiah 1 and 2 comes before verses 13 and 14. Can I get an amen on that? And it says, now it came about in the days of Ahaz. This is the guy that everybody says the prophecy's got to relate to Ahaz. It's got nothing to do with Jesus. Now it came about in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Aram, and Pekah, the son of Remilia, king of Israel, went up to wage war against it but could not conquer it. Ahaz is under military and political stress as one of the kings of the nation. He's being invaded potentially by real political powers. But notice verse 2, it says, When it was reported to the house of David. Right out of here you see two problems. You've got a threat to Ahaz, number one. Number two, you've got a threat to the house of David. Because if this political military warfare against Ahaz transpires, not only will it threaten Ahaz, but it will threaten the line, the Davidic line leading to the Messiah. So right out of the gate, you see not one crisis, but you see two. So what God is doing in Isaiah 7 is he's handling both crises. The crisis to Ahaz is handled in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 3. If you'll look at Isaiah chapter 7, verse 3 for a minute. Because Ahaz is is very, very frightened of what's happening to him. And it says in Isaiah 7, verse 3, Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go now to meet Ahaz, you and your son, Sheer Jassib. So Isaiah, I want you to go and I want you to stand with Ahaz and I want you to bring with him your son. Now what is Sheer Jassib, Isaiah's son, what does that mean? It means a remnant will return. So the presence of Isaiah with his son is a ministry to Ahaz. That's how the Lord handled crisis number one to Ahaz. But then as you keep reading into the chapter, you see God dealing with crisis number two, which is the threat to the Davidic line. 
That's why when you get to Isaiah 7, verse 13, it says, Then he said, Now listen, O house of David. Is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of God as well? Now God is dealing with crisis number two, the threat to the Davidic line. And something very, very interesting happens in Hebrew. It doesn't show up in your English translations. But if you're conversant in Hebrew, the original language of the Old Testament, you will see this as clear as day is the pronoun you, uh, second person pronoun you, switches in the original text from singular to plural. It's singular, 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 singular. You get to verses 13 and 14, which I'm arguing is a prophecy about the virgin birth of Jesus, and suddenly it goes plural. And then when you get outside of verse 14 and you read the rest of the chapter, it goes right back to the singular. So you'll notice here we've got underlined all of the different places in Isaiah 7 where the second person pronoun you is used. You'll notice it's singular twice in verse 9. It's singular again in verse 11. Why is it singular? Because God is ministering to an individual named Ahaz. He's comforting him in the midst of his distress. And oh my goodness, look at verse 13. It just switched to plural. Twice. You go down to verse 14. It switches to plural. You get outside of those passages, verses on your Christmas cards, And suddenly you get to verse 16, it goes right back to singular. You go to verse 17, it gets right, goes right back to singular. And you say to yourself, what in the world is going on here in this passage? What God is doing in those verses, Isaiah 7, verses 13 and 14, is he's ministering to the second crisis, the threat to the house of David. And he is saying this, the line of the house of David leading to the Messiah will not be cut off. It will not be shut off until a Messiah is born. And when that Messiah is born, he will assume uh, the Davidic lineage, the Davidic prophecies. And so this becomes the answer to the question, how in the world can you take Isaiah 7, verses 13 and 14, and apply it 700 years later to the virgin birth of Christ when it's not dealing with the immediate crisis of the day. And my answer to that is this chapter is dealing with the immediate crisis in every verse other than verses 13 and 14. Once you get to verses 13 and 14, God is switching subjects and he's dealing with crisis B, the threat to the Davidic line. And he is saying the Davidic line will not be eradicated until the Messiah comes. And by the way, the Messiah is going to be born of a virgin. And then once he deals with that, he goes right back to the immediate day, the crisis that Ahaz was under. So all of that to say, you have in your Bible, I believe, crystal clear, two passages. One, Genesis 3, verse 15, 
The second one, Isaiah 7, verse 14, which clearly predict the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. And as you continue on in the book of Isaiah, you'll notice that this coming one is called Emmanuel. God is with us. And just trace Emmanuel through the book of Isaiah. I mean, it's very clear that Emmanuel is not some kid born 700 years before the time of Christ. It's talking about the Messiah. I mean, Emmanuel is going to be the one who brings in a global millennial kingdom. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. Emmanuel is going to be the one who is going to be vested with seven sources of knowledge or seven gifts or abilities. Isaiah 11, verse 2. And so if you start to play this game that, oh, the virgin birth is not that big of a deal, let's just marginalize that, let's push that doctrine to the side, let's not be concerned about that. I mean, certainly let's not show up on Christmas morning and hear a theological lesson on this. Got better things to do. If that is the mindset of people, you're destroying messianic prophecy. John 10, verse 35 of Messianic prophecy says this, Jesus himself speaking, and the scripture cannot be broken. If this book predicts the virgin birth of Jesus Christ and exactly what this book teaches had to come to pass, and if it didn't come to pass, God is a liar. Because Isaiah 7, verses 13 and 14 predicts Virgin birth of Jesus, as does Genesis 3, verse 15. The second reason why the virgin birth is such a big deal is the virgin birth of Jesus emphasizes Christ's humanity and his deity. I hope you know this much about Jesus, that Jesus was both. He was 100% God and 100% man. And at the point of the virgin conception, eternally existent deity, something was added to it called humanity. And Jesus became the God-man. The fancy name for this is the incarnation. Some might call this the hypostatic union. He was the unique God-man There has never been anybody like him before. There has never been anything like him after. He is 100% God and 100% man. Was Jesus God or was he man? The answer is yes. That's why he alone could be our mediator between God and man. Only the God man could do that. And to eternally existent deity, humanity was added at the point of the virgin conception. Now, the virgin birth of Jesus brings both out beautifully. Was Jesus a man? Yes. Did he have human experiences? Yes, he did. He understood labor, how to work for a living. All the verses there are on the screen. He understood what it was like to be under distress. He understood what it was like to be troubled. He understood what it was like to be thirsty, hungry, tired, and sad. 
in his humanity, he struggled with limited knowledge, not in his deity, but in his humanity. And at the very bottom of the screen, you'll notice that he completely understood what it was like to be tempted. This is why when you pray to Jesus, pray to God the Father through Jesus Christ, you're praying to someone who's actually stood in your shoes and knew exactly what it was like to live as a human being, yet, as we'll explain in a minute, without a sin nature. So Jesus in his humanity had to go through the normal maturing process. This is described in the book of Luke, chapter 2, verse 15. It says, Jesus kept increasing in wisdom, that's intellectual growth, in stature, that's bodily growth, in favor with God, that is spiritual growth, and favor with men, that is relational growth. The whole process of maturing and becoming an adult that we go through as human beings, Jesus went through the exact same thing. So very clearly, Jesus was a man. And yet, united to his humanity, which was given at the point of the virgin conception, was eternally existent deity. This is why Jesus is called the monogenes. Mono, you'll recognize that as in monopoly, one, genos, as in biology, species, or kind. Jesus was one of a kind. He was the God-man. This is what John chapter 1, verse 1 and verse 14 are saying. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, John chapter 1, and the Word became God. Or excuse me, that's heresy, sorry. The Word became flesh. And so you got to... Pay attention, you never know what's the devil's going to slip in here on these sermons. The, <laughs> the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw him, we saw his glory, glory as the only begotten, there's our word monogenes, from the Father, full of grace and truth. What, what makes Jesus so special? It's this. He's the God-man, a uh, fancy name for it, Incarnation. Another fancy name for it, and I went to seminary to learn a lot of fancy names. The problem is no one will listen to me when I use fancy names, so i got to use them on you. Fancy name for it is the hypostatic union. Jesus is both. He is the God-man. Now think about this for a minute. Doesn't the virgin birth beautifully bring out both? His humanity is brought out because he was, Galatians chapter 4 Verse 4, born of a woman. But his deity at the virgin birth is also masterfully brought out because, yes, he was born of a woman, but he was also born supernaturally, born of a virgin. And so when Jesus, the God-man, made his entrance into our world 2,000 years ago through the science-defying miracle of the virgin birth, God the Father was making a statement, and he was saying, I want you to pay attention to this man, Jesus Christ, because there hasn't been anybody like him, and there never will be anybody like him after. He's the God-man. How do I know he's a man? He's born of a woman. How do I know he's also God? Because his entrance into our world was supernatural. 
he was born of a virgin. And so you start to tamper with the doctrine of the virgin birth and you start to play games with this idea of Jesus being the monogenes, the unique God-man. The virgin birth emphasizes both masterfully. The third reason that the virgin birth had to happen is to protect Christ's eternality. What I mean by that is Jesus is the uncaused cause. Jesus has always been and will always exist. He is what we would call forever existing, eternally existing. He was pre-existent. Long before his birth, 2,000 years ago, Jesus is active in the Old Testament. In fact, when you look at John chapter 8, you might just turn over there for a moment, verses 56 through 59, Jesus speaking to the Pharisees, he says, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not 50 years old. You're not yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? I mean, hold the phone here, Jesus. You just told us you saw Abraham. Abraham existed 2,000 years ago. That's what the Pharisees are saying to Christ. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Of course I saw Abraham. I've always existed. And they knew exactly what he was saying. Because in John 8, verse 59, it says, Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, and Jesus himself went out of the temple. He, he, in their mind, was committing heresy. Because under Jewish law, if a mere man claims to be God, he is to be stoned to death on the spot. Jesus is claiming here to be pre-existent. He is the uncaused Cause He is the eternally existent second member of the Trinity. The only thing that happened at the virgin conception is to his eternally existent deity, something was added, humanity. That's when he became not just God, but the God-man. But you should not at all have in your mind this idea that somehow Jesus started to exist at the point of the virgin conception. A lot of people think this didn't exist until he was born of Mary. That's false doctrine. The Jehovah's Witnesses, not if, but when they come to your door, this is one of the things you talk to them about because they think Jesus was a created being. They think that there was a time in which he was not. They identify Jesus with Michael the archangel, a created angel. Very, very sadly, I have heard a number of evangelical popular speakers, if I called their names, you would know exactly who I'm talking about, trying to make the argument that Jesus was somehow Michael the archangel. Folks, let me tell you something, that is false. Michael the archangel is a created being. Jesus himself had no creation. 
He has always been. He is eternally existent. Well, then, Pastor, what happened at the virgin conception? To eternally existent deity, something was added. There was no subtraction. Something was added called humanity, and it's at that point he became the God-man. Lewis Berry Chafer uh, of the eternally existent Christ says this, The eternity of God is involved in his self-existence. He is uncaused. Therefore, he must be without beginning. He transcends the whole chain of cause and effects. Therefore, he can never cease to be. Let's get our doctrine of Christology correct. The early church, right out of the gate, had to deal with this issue. Because there was a man at that time named Arius. Arius actually had a song, and I'm not, of course, there's no recording of it, so I can't sing it to you, but I know the words of it. The song was, there was a time in which he was not. Arguing that Jesus was somehow created. Jesus somehow had a beginning point. And Arius almost convinced all of the church of that time period of this heresy. And there arose a man named Athanasius who challenged that. Athanasius was in the minority, which shows you that the majority is not always right. Athanasius stood in opposition to that. And people would say, Athanasius, you're going to, you're going to lose this one. Don't you see that the world is against you? Athanasius' response was, it is not the world against Athanasius, it is Athanasius against the world. In other words, even though the church seems to be falling under the heresy of Arianism, which, by the way, is exactly what the Jehovah's Witnesses teach today. They teach the exact same thing. Jesus had a beginning point. Jesus was a created being. Athanasius says that the whole church can believe whatever it's want. I'm standing on the authority of God's word. And you know who won at the end of the day? Not Arius, but Athanasius. Thank God for people that will stand on the authority of God's word against the tide of contemporary opinion. May we be marked among those in our day as we are also being challenged into theological compromise and theological error. And what came out of that great controversy is the Nicene Creed, A.D. 325. And there's a line in the Creed that says this of Jesus, he was begotten and not made. When it says in the Creed he was begotten and not made, that is a challenge to Arian theology. That is a challenge to Jehovah's Witness theology. That is a challenge to, well, perhaps intentioned evangelicals who are confused, trying to say that Jesus was Michael the Archangel. No, he was not. He was never made. Michael the Archangel was made. Well, what was Jesus? He was begotten, but not made. Does that word begotten even mean? You already know. 
John 1 verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory as the only begotten from the father, full of grace and truth. That word translated only begotten is monogenes. He was one of a kind. Why was he one of a kind? Because he was the God man. At the point of the virgin conception to eternally existing deity, humanity was added. That's why there has never been a human being like Jesus before, and there will be never like him since. Begotten, yes. Created, no. Now, think about this for a minute. The virgin birth affects that. Because if Jesus had had a normal birth, if he had had a normal conception, as we have had to exist and to be born into our world, then Jesus had to have a beginning point. I had a beginning point. So did you. At the point of conception, life existed. My parents came together in sexual union. My mother became pregnant. I started to exist at that point. You can mark the point of time in which I came into existence. But wait a minute now. Jesus had no beginning point. And because he had no beginning point, it was absolutely essential, it was absolutely necessary that his entrance into our world not be natural, but supernatural. If it's natural, he had a beginning point, but he's always existed. Therefore, his birth into our world had to be miraculous. He had to be born of a virgin. And if you start to undersell that doctrine, what you're doing without even realizing it is you're attacking the eternality of Jesus Christ. It's another domino that just fell over. Play games with the virgin birth of Christ, suddenly you're playing games with the eternal existence of the second member of the triune Godhead. There is a fourth reason why it was absolutely uh, essential for Jesus to be born of a virgin. He had to be sinless. Now, do we all realize that Jesus was sinless? He never committed a single sin. In fact, in John 8, 46, he stood in front of his opponents, the Pharisees, the people that wanted to put him to death, And he said to them, which of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? In other words, follow me around. Dig into my closet. Find some skeletons if you can. Have you ever done that to people? Hey, Digger, Gary Hart did that. You remember that in the 1980s? Running for president. Hey, he said to the press, follow me around. See if you can dig up some dirt. It took him like only like two days or something. Dig up a bunch of dirt. Um, that's what Jesus is doing to his opponents. Go ahead, make your accusation against me. This, by the way, when Jesus was railroaded through the judicial system, they had to make up evidence because there was no true evidence against him. Matthew chapter 26, verse 59 says, the whole council kept trying to obtain 
false testimony against Jesus so that they could put him to death. Well, why do you have to make up things? Because there were, there were, there were no skeletons in his closet. The people that knew him the best, Peter and John, say that in their epistles. 1 John 2.1 calls, John calls Jesus, Jesus the righteous. 1 John 3.3, 3, Jesus is pure. 1 Peter 2.2, 2, of Jesus, it says, of him who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Now, how does this relate to the virgin birth? Here's how it relates to the virgin birth, folks. The sin nature, and you ladies in here will really appreciate this. The sin nature is passed down through the man because the man has the seed. The man has the the sperm. Psalm 51 and verse 5 says, David speaking, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin. My mother conceived me at the point of conception. David said, I inherited a sin nature. And that sin nature has come into the world through the man. It's the man that passes that down. Romans 5 verse 12 says, Therefore, just as through one man centered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So we are born into the world in a scenario where I don't have to learn how to sin. It comes quite naturally to me. Genesis 8:21 For the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. Jeremiah 17:9 The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick who can understand it. How did I get this way? The sin nature is passed down through my father. And the sin nature that my father has, that was passed down through his father going all the way back to our first father, in an earthly sense, Adam. Jesus said in Mark 7, verses 20 through 23, which precedes out of the man is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries. Well, how do we get this way? Jesus tells us. Verse 23, all these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. My parents never had to sit me down and say, okay, um, we're going to teach you a lesson in selfishness today. Here's how you be selfish. They never had to sit me down and they, they, they never said to me, okay, here's how you throw a tantrum when you can't get your way. Here's how you do it. Watch carefully. I mean, these are all things that come to us, came to me very naturally because I have been born into the world with a nature that is hostile to my creator. This is why I need a new nature and I need the spiritual birth. God has to do some kind of miracle on the inside of us and changes from the inside. You say, interesting lesson on anthropology, Pastor. What does this relate? How does this relate to the virgin birth? It has everything to do with the virgin birth. Because if Joseph was Christ's biological father, not just his legal father, but his biological father, then he would have had the exact same sin nature that I have and that you have. 
You start to tamper with the doctrine of the virgin birth and suddenly you're tampering with the nature of Jesus Christ that was sinless and flawless. Jesus would have gotten to the core just like we are had it not been for the virgin birth of Christ. I don't know if you remember the movie, The Last Temptation of Jesus Christ. It was sort of a big scandal back in the 1980s. William Defoe and... Robert Scorsese actors and producers in that particular film. And they had a scene there where they had Jesus on the cross and he was committing adultery or lust, heterosexual lust. Lusting after, I can't remember who it was, Mary Magdalene or something like that. I'm here to tell you that that kind of thing could never happen. Jesus could not have been a mental adulterer. Because he was born supernaturally into our world, not naturally, and he didn't have a nature like ours. And so you can start to see that the virgin birth becomes a big deal. The fifth reason why the virgin birth had to happen exactly as the Bible portrays it is to protect the bodily atonement of Jesus Christ. And there's two things to understand about the bodily atonement. Number one, our sin against God is eternal. Our sin against God brought in an eternal consequence and an eternal ramification. Uh, All of these verses here explain that. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. God warned our forebears, Genesis 2, verse 17. The day you eat from the forbidden tree is the day you'll die. What, what's the big deal? I mean, I mean, why the, the serious consequence and the serious penalty for our sin? Because it's a sin against an eternal God is the problem. And because it's a sin against an eternal God, it has eternal consequences. And eternal ramification. So since this is our sad reality, eternal sinners with an eternal price tag hanging over our heads, how does it get fixed? God says an eternal God will fix it. It's an eternal sin, so eternity itself, the eternally existent second member of the Trinity, has to fix the problem. But wait a minute, Pastor. People are saying there's no virgin birth. And people are saying that Jesus had a beginning point. If that's true, then you just disqualified Jesus for being our eternal substitute. Follow where I'm going with this. One domino gets knocked over and all of these other ones start to fall. Jesus, if he's not eternal and had a created being, how does he qualify to fix our eternal sin against God. Only eternity can do that. And you make Jesus non-eternal because you start to think he had a beginning point and suddenly he's disqualified for being our atoning substitute. Beyond that, our atoning substitute has to be perfect. Perfect. A perfect substitute must pay the penalty For man's sin. That is imagery 
that goes all the way back to the Passover lamb, which is a foreshadowing of what Jesus would do. You see it in Exodus 12, verse 5. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. Well, why? Why does it have to be unblemished? I mean, I mean, why were the priests so specific about disqualifying lambs that were genetically speckled or spotted? What's the big deal? Because this points to Jesus. That's why. And God is giving us an object lesson that the only atoning sacrifice he will accept is a perfect sacrifice. That's why when you get to the very end of the Old Testament and you run into this book called Malachi, I call him Malachi, the only Italian prophet in the Old Testament. And if you read Malachi chapter 1, verse 8 and verse 14, you see Malachi, God the Holy Spirit, through Malachi getting angry with the Jewish people because they were bringing in all of these defiled animals to sacrifice. And Malachi says, you know, why don't you just go offer those to your governor? You don't, you don't offer something like that to God. You offer something like that to your politicians. That's what he's saying. Malachi 1, verse 18 and verse 14. And why get all bent out of shape about that? I mean, just let it go. No big deal. Well, the issue is these things are a prefigurement of Jesus. That's why when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming, John 1, 29, he said, Behold the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. They all, they all understood that he had to be spotless and blameless and sinless because that's how their animal sacrificial system was to work. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19 says, But with the precious blood as of a lamb. Watch this unblemished, spotless, the blood of Christ. Great teaching, Pastor, on the atonement of Jesus, but what in the world does this have to do with the virgin birth? Very, very simple. If Jesus had had a natural conception and a natural birth, as we have argued, then he inherited a sin nature. He was no different than William Defoe hanging on the cross in the movie The Last Temptation of Jesus Christ, lusting after the Mary after Mary Magdalene. You start to think that way because Hollywood tells you it's true, and you're following Hollywood instead of the Bible. Now you've got a savior who can't be a savior, because the savior himself can't have a sin nature. He's got to be perfect. It's typified in all of these animal sacrifices. It's prefigured in all of these animal sacrifices. And Jesus himself cannot be our atoning substitute because A, he's not eternal because he had a natural birth. And B, he had a sin nature so he can't be perfect. See, we're not even dealing anymore here with the virgin birth. We're dealing here with the centrality of Christianity which is the bodily atonement of Jesus. And you are doing damage to Scripture, which to my mind is irreparable. Get a generation thinking this way, you don't have Christianity anymore. 
Virgin birth is huge. The virgin birth is a big deal. There's a sixth reason why Jesus had to be born of a virgin, and that's to circumvent the curse of Jeconiah. Notice Jeremiah 22, verse 30. God said something to this man, Jeconiah, a wicked king. He said, thus says the Lord, write this man down childless. A man will not prosper in his days, who will not prosper in his days. For no man of his descendants will be sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. I mean, this guy was so bad that a curse was pronounced on him and all of his lineage. Well, Houston, we have a little problem. Because guess who is in the genealogy leading to Jesus Christ? Matthew chapter 1 has a beautiful genealogy pointing to Jesus Christ, going all the way back to Abraham, and guess who's in the line? Look at number 28 there if your eyes are good. It's this man, Jeconiah. Jeconiah is mentioned in Matthew chapter 1, verse 12. Now we got a problem. Because God pronounced a judgment, a curse, on Jeconiah and his descendants, which would include Jesus. So what in the world is God going to do about this? God solves the problem by saying Joseph, who was in that line, will not be Christ's biological father, but will be his legal father only. Well, how in the world did Joseph not become Christ's biological father? Because his wife, Mary, gave birth to Christ while Mary was still a virgin. So you tamper with the virgin birth of Jesus and you give Jesus suddenly a natural birth into our world, then you put him right under the curse of Jeconiah. And how could a man under the curse of Jeconiah be our substitute? And you say, phew, I'm glad God solved that problem. But don't get too comfortable because Houston, we've got a second problem. If Joseph was Christ's legal father and not biological father, and Joseph is connected genealogically to David, how in the world could Jesus be the heir to David's throne? How do you make Jesus the heir to David's throne when Joseph, connected to Jesus, was not his father? Only his legal father, but not his biological father. So it's almost as if God had one problem, the curse of Jeconiah, which he solved at the virgin birth of Christ. But now God, in in solving that problem, has a second problem. The second problem is you just took Jesus out of the Davidic line. And Bible prophecy, of course, is very, very clear that Jesus must be a direct descendant of David. In fact, right there in the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, you'll notice number 14 there, David. A thousand years before the time of Christ in the Davidic covenant, God said this. 
Second Samuel 7, verse 13. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Verse 12. When your days are complete, and when you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up a descendant after you, who will come forth, and I will establish his kingdom. Read this weekend. Second Samuel 7, verses 12 through 16, and you'll see very clearly that the Messiah, when he comes, has to be in David's line. And the virgin birth just took him out of David's line. Why did the virgin birth take him out of David's line? Because the virgin birth makes Joseph Christ's legal father, but not his biological father. Making Joseph Christ's legal father, but not his biological father, is a good thing because that got us out of the curse of Jeconiah. But it's a bad thing because it took Jesus out of the Davidic Davidic lineage. And what's so wonderful about the virgin birth is God says, don't sweat it. I've got it under control. Why is it under control? Because Luke chapter 3 gives you another genealogy, not through Christ's father, but through his mother Mary. Matthew chapter 1 is the genealogy of Christ coming through Joseph. Luke chapter 3 is the genealogy of Jesus coming through Mary. And look at this. Look who is in Mary's line. David. It's right there in your Bible. It's in Luke 3, 31. The son of Mathatha, however you say that, the son of Nathan, the son of David. That's not Joseph's line. That's Mary's line. And so the fact that David is in Mary's line indicates that Jesus is still the Davidic descendant even though he's not under the curse of Jeconiah. You follow what God just did here? I mean, this is, a, this is a, an amazing thing about problems that we think are insurmountable. And God already has the answer. Oh my goodness, uh, Jeconiah's curse. What's that going to do to Jesus? God says, don't worry, I've got that under control, virgin birth. Oh no, virgin birth, that's going to... Take Jesus out of the Davidic line. God says, don't worry about it. I've got that under control. Look at the genealogy in Luke 3. Wow. You mean God loves us so much so as to work out all of these intricacies and details to get Jesus born as we celebrate on Christmas morning so he could grow up, become an adult, be that perfect sacrifice, pay for the sins of the world, and rise from the dead. I mean, does God really love us that much in advance to work out all of these problems? And the fact of the matter, he does love us that much. Seventh and final reason why Jesus had to be born of a virgin is to vindicate the historical record. The Bible is not a book of fairy tales. It's a book of history. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, read those last night at our Christmas Eve service, says Jesus was born of a virgin. 
Luke 1, 26 through 35, and then in chapter 2, verses 1 through 19, says Jesus was born of a virgin. If Jesus was not born of a virgin, then the historicity of the Bible itself is in doubt. One of the very sad things that's being said is this, again by Andy Stanley. Maybe the thought, and for whatever reason he's trying, and I don't understand the motive other than maybe Andy Stanley, who best I can tell is a believer, is trying to sort of play down things in the Bible because they're not palatable to the unsaved mind. Maybe that's his motive. Only God knows. But in that same sermon I quoted at the beginning, he said this, maybe the thought is that they had to come up with some myth about the the birth of Jesus to give him street cred later on. My goodness. Is it, it, now watch this very carefully. It is interesting because Matthew gives us a version of the birth of Jesus. Luke does, but Mark and John don't even mention it. And a lot has been made of that. Hey, Matthew mentions it. Luke mentions it, but, you know, the doctrine must not be that important because Mark doesn't mention the virgin birth of Jesus, nor does John. So I guess God has to say something four times for it to be true. If he only says it twice, then it's not as important. But I'm here to tell you that Matthew mentions it, Luke mentions it, and you know what? Andy Stanley says John doesn't mention the virgin birth of Christ, but actually John does mention the virgin birth of Christ. And the place I'm going to is John 8, 41. This is the Pharisees speaking to Jesus. You are not doing the deeds of your father, they said to him. They're trying to disqualify him from his claim to being the God-man. They say, watch this very carefully, we were not born of fornication. For we have one Father God. Hey, you know what you are, Jesus? You are someone that was born of fornication. I guess the slang word would be used today, you're a bastard. Pharisees said, I I have a father and mother, you didn't. Why would they say something like that? Why would you say, why would you call somebody that kind of name that you're trying to discredit because they knew about the virgin birth. They were aware of it. They they were aware that your mama or your daddy, I should say, maybe better phrase that way, your daddy wasn't Joseph. They knew something about that. There There was something really weird that went on here. And then they falsely asserted that, well, the reason daddy, Joseph wasn't your daddy, is because Mary was impregnated by someone she wasn't married to. You, Jesus, were born out of wedlock. That's what they're saying to him. And I'm here to tell you that they wouldn't even have the wherewithal to say something like that in everything we know about first century Jewish culture if they didn't have some awareness that something really peculiar happened with Mary who was conceived by the Holy Spirit. See, this is something that Andy Stanley is not even bringing up. 
oh, it's just mentioned in Matthew and it's just mentioned in Luke. And I'm thinking, well, so what? How many times does God have to say something before it becomes important? It's not even mentioned in John's gospel. Yeah, it is. It is mentioned in John's gospel. It's the basis of the pharisaical attack against Jesus Christ. The truth of the matter, folks, is if the virgin birth didn't happen exactly like the Bible says, there's no point in even being here this morning. There's no point in being a Christian. Because what has happened is the intricacies of your Bible just collapsed as one domino knocks over another, knocks over another, knocks over another. Bible prophecy itself is invalidated, making God a liar. The emphasis on the humanity and the deity of Jesus is de-emphasized. You have suddenly waged an attack against the eternal existence of the second member of the Godhead. You now have a Savior who can't be a Savior because he had a sin nature and can't qualify as our atoning substitute. He's not eternal and he's not sinless. And if he's not eternal... And if he's not sinless, he doesn't qualify to be our substitute. You just put Jesus under the curse of Jeconiah. And you're just rewriting a history book, which is the Bible. And so may the Lord help us to understand this. In a, in a time period where we're so busy with other things. The other things are not bad in and of themselves. But they very quickly in your mind will eclipse the miracle that God did. Which is why we're here on Christmas morning celebrating this. Because it was a miracle. And without this miracle, you can't have Christianity. And so why did God go to all this trouble? For this virgin birth to be executed and transpire because he loves you that much wants to have a relationship with you. And he's provided the means in which that relationship can transpire. He's got to deal with the sin issue. Jesus was the only person to deal with that could deal with that sin issue. Through his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, and since God did all the work, he gives this to us as a gift. And the only way to receive a gift from God is to believe. That's what the book of Romans 4, 4 and 5 says. To the one who does not work but believes. If you won't receive this as a gift and somehow you want to earn it, you can't have it. It comes under the condition completely as a free grace gift. No strings attached. And if you want to attach strings, you can't have this. But if you, under the conviction of the Spirit, want to receive this, understanding that there's no strings attached, you can receive it right now as I'm talking. It's not a matter of walking an aisle, joining a church, giving money, vowing to do better in the new year. It's got nothing to do with that. It has to do with a personal moment of privacy between you and the Lord where the Lord will put you under conviction. The 
spirit does that. He will put us under conviction of our need to receive this gift, but he won't believe for you. He will bring you to the point of decision, but he will not override your volition and force you to receive this. You've got to receive it. And you receive it by hearing it. And then in your heart, you trust in the proclamation of this biblically-based message. And the moment you do that, God looks at you as your sins, all those scarlet, are white as snow. In this season of gifts, I can't think of a greater gift to receive than this. So our exhortation to people listening is to receive this by simply trusting in what God has done for you. If it's something that you need more explanation on, I'm available after the service to talk. Shall we pray? Father, we're grateful for the virgin birth. We seek not to water it down and marginalize it. We seek to protect and promote everything the Bible says about it. Thank you so much for Jesus and what he did for us. And how that great mission began with the virgin conception, which we're celebrating today. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name and God's people said.